thank you all for coming to uh, today's guest lecture. Uh, my name is John Olmstead. Um, back in March, I went to see uh, Dr. Rucker speak at uh, the Booksmith on Haight Street. He's presenting his new book, which is The Life Box, The Seashell, and the Soul. Subtitle, What Nerdly Computation Taught Me About the Ultimate Reality, the Meaning of Life, and How to Be Happy. Um, so afterwards, I spoke to Dr. Rucker <coughs> and uh, mentioned I worked at ILM. And uh, next thing I knew, here he is speaking today. Um, Dr. Rector is at first a writer. He also has a, a PhD in mathematics. Um, he's published 27 books, um, probably best known for his books about uh, science and consciousness, um, including books such as Fourth Dimension, Infinity of the Mind, and Mind Tools. Um, he's also the author of 13 novels, uh, considered to be one of the leaders in the uh, cyberpunk literary movement. Um, his novels, uh, Software and Wetware, each won a uh, Philip, uh, Philip K. Dick Award for science fiction. Um, he worked at Autodesk, where he developed uh, software uh, together with James Blake, I think I'm pronouncing that right, um, called Chaos, the software. Um, more recently, he was teaching computer graphics and game programming at San Jose State University. Um, currently writing a new novel and uh, working on a movie version of the book Master of Space and Time. Um, Dr. Rucker is not new to ILM. His last visit was in 1993 when he was on assignment to write an article for uh, Wired Magazine on Jurassic Park. Um, myself, I've been a, a longtime fan of Dr. Rucker's. Uh, sharing his love for uh, computational theory, complex systems, fractals, uh, philosophy, and uh, scuba diving. Um, most importantly, I think we both share kind of an endless curiosity about the world around us. Um, he's here today to talk about uh, gnarly computation, a term he uses to mean computation that is richly complex and capable of producing results that are too complicated to figure out in a logical fashion. Um, he points out that this notion of gnarly computation is particularly useful in designing procedural graphics and uh, animation techniques for games and special effects. And so, I present today's uh, guest speaker, Dr. Rudy Rucker. Thanks, John. That was a very, very coherent introduction. It's, uh, I think you touched all the bases. Um, I'm going to talk about, yeah, gnarly computation, and uh, that Illo's made by some shareware I wrote a couple of years ago. You can get it. You can download it at my website. It's called Kapow. And uh, it's also nice to be back at ILM. Last time I was here, as John mentioned, was in '93. It was up at the uh, Kerner Optical Company in San Rafael. And uh, at that time, they were sort of just getting into digital. And it's amazing how far you guys have come in, the, in the, that number of years. Um, the book that I, I want to talk about is The Life Box, the Seashell, and the Soul. And one of the first things I will do will explain the title. Uh, why did I call it that? And the subtitle is. Uh, I noticed a lot of science books these days have long subtitles, so I decided to go for it. And uh, at the very end, I'll tell you how to be happy, because certainly that's something we all need to know. Uh, now, the title, uh, the reason I chose the title is a, what I call a dialectic triad. And uh, that is to say, there's a thesis on the left end, an antithesis on the right end, and the synthesis is in the middle. Now, the thesis is the life box. Now, that's a word you might not know because it's a word that I made up. And uh, I use that word sometimes in my science fiction novels. And the idea behind a life box, it's sort of like a, an extreme version of a blog. It's suppose you take a, often when people retire, for instance, they'd like to write a, a memoir. And then they try to write their memoir, and they discover that their life is a sort of a fractal. It's everything connects to everything else, and it's hard to put things into order. Even if you try to order it by time, 
then you have to, you know, recall all these other things. And uh, what might be easier would be if you just had, uh, like, your cell phone or your iPod, if it would just ask you questions and you could talk to it and tell its stories, which is sort of how we, we normally end up telling our life story. And you could imagine uh, accumulating a, a fairly large database, you know, a couple of gigs, maybe even a terabyte, of you telling stories about your life. You could put all your pictures in there, videos. And then you'd have this sort of little box. And then somebody could come up to it, and it could sort of do the, the Turing imitation game. They could talk to it. They could ask you questions. And uh, actually, even a blog has this. Most blogs will have a search feature. And you could sort of search, and it'll get you a blog entry that has to do with the question that you ask it. So you could ask this device something, and it could pop up some data that would more or less answer your question. And uh, then you could do follow-up questions. Of course, the missing piece that's been missing for so long, and who knows when we will actually ever get it, would be the AI software that would allow the, your life box to take the data, everything you know, and then combine it in new ways and create patterns. But Maybe someday that will be possible. So that's the idea of the life box, basically making a software model of yourself. Now, the antithesis to that, um, and well, let me back up just a second before I get into that. The antithesis is the idea of the soul, and the soul is the idea that you're not just you know, this smart cell phone. You're, uh, you're more than that. And the synthesis is going to be the notion of gnarly computation, where maybe we could take some simple computer-type model, and maybe it can, by dint of what computation does that we weren't maybe aware of, it can generate things that are like a soul. So uh, a little more about the thesis. It could be taken in a more general sense. It's not just ourselves that we're interested in modeling. We're interested in modeling reality. We're interested in modeling the world. Uh, this is sort of a popular theme in science fiction now. This notion, uh, Charles Strauss popularized it in his book Accelerando last year, that uh, maybe we should just break the world up into a bunch of Intel chips and then let the world be this huge render farm that's simulating reality. And uh, that would, you know, there'd be so much computational power. Maybe we're, they're quantum computers or something. So we've got this huge gnat-like cloud of of chips, we smash Earth up into these things. We let them spread around our orbit, around the sun. We get this Dyson sphere. They're all soaking up photoelectric uh, energy from the sun. So we've created this huge, you know, really large computational network. And it could model everything that we're doing here. And so uh, there'd be a net gain, because we'd end up with more computational power. All the matter on the inside of the Earth's being wasted, after all. It's just, just holding stuff up. We could do more. And now I don't, I don't actually think that's a good idea. Uh, the novel I'm writing now is called Post Singular. And it's sort of about the battle between there's you know, this demented, evil, uh, high-tech businessman who wants to do this. And there's people that are trying to stop him. And aliens get involved. I mean, you don't want to pass up aliens if you're writing an SF book. But, um, but anyway, but that sort of comes out of this thesis. And Stephen Wolfram sort of popularized this in his book, A New Kind of Science. And I, I coined the phrase universal automatism. And the idea is the world is made of computations. Now, I, I actually think this is a good way to think of the world. And it's, again, it's sort of history sort of repeating itself. In Newton's time, they were just getting really good at making clocks and these brass instruments. So people would say, well, the world is like a clock. The world is, is made of clockwork. And so what we tend to do as humans, the technology that we're particularly good at, uh, we, we like to think maybe that's what the world is made of. Logic was big in the 30s. And there's this idea the world is made of logical systems. And a computation is sort of different from a logical system in that the emphasis on, in a computation is that you can put the thing down into a machine and you can let it run for a long time, which uh, if you're a mathematician, old school mathematician, you sort of don't get this sort of free running computation happening. You get the axioms and you have to sort of push it one step at a time. Now, 
if I want to say everything's made of a computation, so we want to use computation in a fairly broad sense. So I'm just taking to be a process that obeys finitely describable rules. Now, whether I would say there's one single computation that underlies the world, that's uh, an interesting philosophical question, and I wouldn't really want to commit to an answer on either side. Actually, I see Wolfram every now and then, and he has this sort of conviction that there is one, it's almost like the Douglas Adams thing, 42. He, he has this idea that there is this one underlying computation. He thinks quantum mechanics is an illusion. There's a digital underlying substrate, and it's what he calls a network rewriting system. And there might actually be some not very large code number that's generating all of reality. And uh, I'm not sure that I would take that route, or at least I wouldn't want to commit. It seems we can also usefully just say there's computations at all different levels. Society is a kind of computation. Matter is doing a sort of computation. Uh, when you get down to the physical level, there's, you can think of atoms as computations. But it might not be that there's one single one. Now, uh, certainly the mind is in some way made of computations. And that's, uh, that's the life box idea. Now, in actually the book that uh, I'm talking about, the book has six chapters. And it's sort of working your way up talking about computer science, physics, biology, psychology, sociology, philosophy. At each level, it's possible to think of these things as made as a sort of higher order computations. Now, again, I mentioned basically there's resistance to this. And uh, kind of the less technical of a person you are, the more that you would resist the idea that everything is a computation. Because to the average person, computers are you know, fairly annoying things. Actually, even if you're technical, familiarity breeds contempt. Right? I mean, the more you, time you spend with computers, the less you like them at some level. And you always have to fix them. You always have to upgrade them. Uh, they buzz. They're an ugly color. You know, there's a lot of things about them that are easy not to like. And so we sort of want to look for things that say, well, look, I don't want to be viewed as a computer. But remember. Again, I'm using computer computation in a broad sense, not just in these beige or black boxes that we have under our desk or, or in our pockets or in our, our, our knapsacks. So, but there's this computation. When you look into yourself, you feel like, I mean, this isn't logic. I am. I'm, I'm part of the world. The, the world is this big cosmic one. You've got your dreams. Every now and then, if you're lucky, you're out in nature or you're tripping or something. You're praying. You get a vision of God. You have this sense of having a soul. And then there's always the, the, maybe quantum mechanics can, can sort of throw a monkey wrench in. And maybe reality is not digital enough to even be a computation. So that's the, the feeling. But the basic is the gut feeling uh, that I don't feel like I'm a, a computation. Now, the synthesis would be. Uh, we can look at gnarly computations. Now, I use gnarly. I'm actually using gnarly in a technical sense. Uh, Wolfram distinguishes between, and I'll talk about this more in a minute, different types of computations, ones that are sort of very simple or cold, and ones that are very random looking or hot. And at the interface, there's the gnarly zone. And he calls those class four computations. But uh, I think the word gnarly is. A little more colorful. Now, example of the, the type of synthesis I'm thinking of, uh, sometimes people would say, well, I couldn't be a computation because I have free will. And uh, that is to say, I don't know what I'm going to have for supper tonight. I don't know who I'm going to marry. I don't know what record I'm going to put on next. I don't know what mood I'll be in in, in half an hour. I'm unpredictable. Uh, therefore, I'm not a computation, because computations are predictable. But the catch is uh, <coughs> computations aren't actually necessarily predictable, uh, in the sense that although it's deterministic, if you can reset a computation, we're thinking of a, like a digital computation, if you can reset it to the same state, run it through 100 million steps, maybe that takes 15 minutes, then you get to that end state. 
if you repeat that, you'll get the same end state every time. So I'll say it's pr predictable in the sense that starting it out and running it for 15 minutes will always produce the same image. But it's not predictable in the sense that if you give me the start condition and the computation, there's no way for me to tell you what it's going to look like in 15 minutes other than running the damn thing for 15 minutes. It's like too gnarly a computation. Too much is going on. There's no way to predict what it's going to do. Now, when I use predict today, I'm actually using it in a computer science sense of allowing for an exponential speed up. Example of exponential speed up is arithmetic. If you use digits in your arithmetic, in other words, you learn to write down the Arabic numerals and add like 1971 plus 742, you just add the little digits and you get the, the answer quite quickly. But if you were to do it counting by ones on your finger, it would take you, you know, like 10,000 steps or whatever to do that, you know. See? And so by using arithmetic, we get what computer scientists call an exponential speed up. Notice the amount of time that you use is logarithmically shorter. Instead of using 10 to the 10th steps, you use 10 steps. Instead of using 10 to the 30th steps, you use 30 steps. So these radical types of speed up, and that's what I mean when we say you've really crushed a problem. And things like Newton's laws, when you do projectile motion, we can do a prediction of a projectile going through the air. If you do like a, a dx dt simulation, like step it along bit by bit, you know, that might take you 10,000 steps again. But if we could say, oh, I'll just use some equation, I'll do like you know, y equals x squared minus g, gtx or whatever it is, and just drop that in, then you say, OK, that way I've crushed it. I can predict it. But in actual fact, in, in, like in nature, for instance, particles don't move according to those perfect Newtonian laws. They're actually, the first computer they built, uh, ANIAC, I guess it was ANIAC, or uh, maybe, maybe it had a different name. The one they built at the Institute for Advanced Study uh, in the 40s, what they were using that for, they wanted to use it to try to grind out artillery trajectories. And they weren't going to do it by applying just some formulas. They were going to do a basically a brute force uh, little step-by-step -step digital physics simulation of that. And because they knew that this was a computation that in some sense nature does, but we can't predict it. So my point here is that I could be a computation, but I could still feel like I have free will because there's no way to predict where I'm going to be at even in five minutes because the computation is just too gnarly. It's incompressible. It's unpredictable. So that, uh, that is the synthesis. That's the sort of burden of my book is to develop this notion that computations can be very rich. Now, uh, why do I summarize that by the word seashell? Well, there's this sort of mascot that Stephen Wolfram adopted. It's the cone shell. Uh, they live in the South Pacific. They're very cool creatures. Uh, actually, I have a novel coming out in this fall called Mathematicians in Love. And I got so obsessed with these cone shells, I found out a lot about them. Uh, they can eat fish. I mean, this thing looks like an innocent snail. But he has this proboscis. It sticks out and it shoots this harpoon, like a little tooth. It fires out a tooth with a poison in it, conotoxin. It hits the fish. It's attached by this tendril of slime. It paralyzes the fish, and then it sucks the slime back in. Its mouth opens up like this big funnel, and it'll swallow this goldfish. And then the next, next morning, you find just this neat packet of snot with bones inside it. And that's, so in my novel, there's this character, this sort of sleazy character, uh, a hitman. And he's attacking my guys. And th this alien flying cone shell appears <laughs> and swallows him. And then they find him in this. The, the, in the pumpkin patch, wrapped in snot. And he had this smiley face gold medallion he was wearing, and that's on top of the package. Then the guy's girlfriend's father finds this and, and gets all mad. You know, he thinks, thinks he's a murderer. And of course, the cone shell's there. It's hiding in the sand with just his proboscis sticking out. But I'm getting a little off track here. But that's the point of a face-to-face -face performance, after all. 
Uh, you can, by the way, you can see the slides. I'm going to put them on the web. If you go to rudyrucker.com/pdf, uh, there's a bunch of PDF files there, and one of them is called ILM underscore May 18, 2006. You could look at that. But anyway, the point of this cone shell, it's a certain kind of computation. In particular, it's a one-dimensional cellular automaton. Uh, how many of you know about cellular automata? Uh, pretty many of you. Okay. Uh, the idea of cellular automata is you take a, a region, like a line or a plane, and you divide it up into cells, or little unit-sized spaces. And uh, if you take a one-dimensional one, we take like this row of cells, and each cell can be either black or white. And uh, the cells have an update rule. And the way that a cone, a shell grows, there's actually this lip on the mantle where it's actually accreting a little bit of new uh, material on the shell every year. And what it will do, the, the cells will either be, and it turns out his skin, that, that thing at the bottom, that's the cone shell's mantle or his, uh, his slimy snail foot. And you notice that has the same black and white colors. And uh, what it will do, the, the, the pigmentation in a cell will depend on the pigmentation in the two neighboring cells. Now, um, what I think I will do, I think I'll show you some of these guys for a second. Okay, so let's let's get out of this for a second. And uh, I've got this software here. Uh, this is my cellular automata software. These are two-dimensional cellular automata, which uh, I'll talk more about these in a minute. These are showing a, uh, here we're looking at, this is nine different rules, and each of them is running a, uh, a two-dimensional CA, where each pixel essentially looks at the eight pixels around it. And one thing, most cellular automata that you've ever seen are digital. And I'm one of the few people who got interested in doing cellular automata where the states are continuous numbers. Uh, the famous game of life, the states, there's just zero or one. But uh, what I found with a lot of different kinds of digital CAs is they, they tend to produce this specific kind of pattern uh, that was first observed by the Soviet chemists Belozov and Jabotinsky, actually in Petri dishes where they would put in certain mixtures of chemicals and they would get these, they called them rotating chemical reactions. But it turns out these forms occur all over the place in nature. But we'll come back to those for a second. Right now I want to show you a little more about the one-dimensional cellular automata. So uh, let's see. Let's look at this one. So uh, if we go here and we uh, we could just seed this with one cell. What you'll notice, uh, oh, let me do one other thing. Um, So if uh, what we've got going on here, let's particularly look at this one. This is the sort of most interesting one. So let's uh, let's give him a single cell, and uh, let's uh, pause him for a second. Now, what's going on in this picture is that we're starting with a uh, each successive row in this picture is a later time. So we're starting at a given time, at the initial time there in the middle. We had a row of white cells or white pixels, and we colored one of them black. And then this rule, it's known as rule 30. And the reason being, if you write the lookup table for the rule in binary, it turns out to be the number 30. And what it does for each cell, there's, there's basically eight possibilities. I'm white, 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 black, white, white white, black, white, black, black, white. So there's sort of eight kind of on-off possibilities for your three cells. And we just have some sort of arbitrary lookup table depending on uh, what your neighbors are. Now, what's kind of interesting about this rule is it's a very simple rule. And the simplest possible star condition, one marked pixel. And what happens is you get this stuff along the, the left side is uh, kind of orderly 
But what you have on the right side, there's this sort of growing amount of disorder occurs there. And uh, this is kind of an example of a computation which is gnarly. Because it would be very hard to predict on the basis, I mean, here I'm at generation 2000. It would have been kind of hard to predict saying, for instance, uh, if I go to, you know, if I said I'm going to take this rule 30, I'm going to start one, one single marked pixel, I'm going to run it, whatever, 2000 generations. Can you tell me, is this pixel here going to be black or white? And, you know, you say, well, it's deterministic, so you ought to know. But the only way you're going to find out is to crunch that long computation. You're going to say, well, <laughs> gosh, what I'm going to have to do is actually run the computation. And we could maybe start it over again. We could say uh, the same thing's going to happen. So uh, the, the one of the kind of morals here is that we can get unbelievable computational complexity out of very simple things. The, if, if you're not somebody that does a lot of stuff with computers, you tend to think of a computation as something like adding, you know, 1976 and 789. You get the answer. You're done. But a more, a different way to think of a computation is something that doesn't necessarily stop, some sort of ongoing process. <laughs> now, there's another uh, rule that's actually more interesting than Rule 30, because uh, Rule 30 is sometimes viewed as a rule that's, in some sense, too hot, because <coughs> you get that. What William Gosper, he discovered the glider gun in life. And he refers to rules like Rule 30 as seething dog barf. That's his, his technical term for them. Now, this is a rule that, uh, this is called Rule 110. And this is a rule that's, it's kind of, this is more what we think of when we talk about a gnarly rule. Because this is where we have, it's not like seething dog barf, but it doesn't just die out and do something boring. We've got this kind of interesting uh, patterns moving around where this glider kind of bumps into something and then sets off another glider. And it's in a way, it's like looking at uh, particles in a kind of a, a bubble chamber. We've got these little things that are moving around this world. The world wraps, by the way, the left hand matches the right. So something runs off one end, it's going to come back the other. And so when that, that glider there hits uh, this vertical thing, It'll set off another, some other particle sends off. And so this kind of goes on and on. And depending on the initial state, uh, this can run for a very long time and keep doing stuff. And one of the interesting things about this rule is uh, Wolfram and some of the guys who work with him, a guy called uh, Matthew Cook, were able to prove that this rule is a universal computation. So essentially, any anything any kind of computation, like anything like that your, your, your 3,000 processor render farm can do, in principle, this cheesy little rule could do. If I gave it enough data in that top row and just let it run long enough, I could get uh, whatever I wanted to coming out of it. Let's, let's reseed it so it looks a little more exciting. So in other words, depending what you put in the first row, you've got this data bouncing back and forth. And uh, again, the notion of a universal computation is that's something Alan Turing formulated. The bar is not very high. Uh, any desktop computer you have is a vertical computer, uh, excuse me, a universal computer. The whole deal is that you can, if you wanted to do something, you get the software, put it on there, and it will then do what you want it to. So we can, in other words, our, what makes our digital computers powerful is that they're flexible. Now, what we've come to realize is very simple systems can be universal computers. And in fact, lots of natural phenomena are probably <coughs> universal computers. The behavior of water, uh, the behavior of air, the behavior of fire, anything really that is doing something that's kind of complicated looking is actually a universal computation. And that uh, turns out to be kind of a significant fact. OK, now let's go back to the slides now. And uh, let me say a little bit more about these. Whoops. OK, so as I'm getting at, there are these, we can sort of divide computations up into three zones, too cold, too hot, and gnarly. 
And uh, sometimes Wolfram distinguishes four classes. One's computations that die out. Now, actually, most of the things that you ask your computer to do are class one. You ask it to do something, it does it, and then it sends up an icon and says, I'm finished. And at that point, the computation stops. So uh, for a computer scientist, at some level, those computations aren't, aren't so interesting. Other things that can happen, the computer gets into a loop. And usually when that happens, that's almost always a bad thing. Because you, you either want it to stop or you want it to be doing something interesting. But if it's in a loop, uh, it's, it's not doing anything productive for you. Uh, then there's the things where you have a program that sort of runs forever. You get some particle system going. And in principle, you know, if you didn't turn the machine off, it could keep bouncing around and doing stuff indefinitely. Or you could have a game. You could have your, your non-player characters. Uh, they could be maybe happy doing stuff in there as long as you left, left the program on. Uh, maybe building things, killing each other. And there we say, well, what kind of behavior are they going to exhibit? Are they going to be repeating themselves with a fairly slow, low cycle? Are they going to be essentially doing completely random things? I could just have them basically consulting a randomizer all the time and you know moving around randomly, and that, that's not very satisfying. And generally, what we want to see, or what we, we like to see as humans, we like to see systems that are gnarly. They're doing that kind of in-between behavior, this sort of interface between order and chaos, this place where we have purposeful-looking behavior. Um, and that's the gnarly zone. Now, as I mentioned, the rule 30 is uh, it's actually you can be used as a randomizer. Uh, in fact, Wolfram patented it as a, a randomizer. And when I worked at Autodesk, uh, we did a couple of products there, um, Chaos and uh, Artificial Life Lab and uh, Cellular Automata Laboratory. And we usually used a randomizer based on Rule 30. The later I found out it's not that great a randomizer. Um, at least the way I'd implemented it wasn't that great. Uh, now, uh, but it seeds. Now, rule 110, that one I was just showing you, it has gliders, and that's considered to be an example of a gnarly class 4 computation. And uh, it's computation universal. Now, these guys are sort of my favorites. These are gnarly two-dimensional cellular automata. These are the Jabotinsky scrolls I was showing you a second ago. And uh, there's also there's sort of a whole range of other continuous-valued cellular automata you can get. Uh, one thing that I found kind of interesting, I've always thought it would be nice to have a surfing game where instead of linear waves, we had quadratic waves and cubic waves. And what do I mean by that? Well, it turns out you can model wave motion fairly easily uh, using the wave equation. It turns out the rule is actually, in, in a cellular automaton context, the, the rule is very simple. You simply take uh, you, the variable is your height above the surface level. And your new height is going to be the average of your neighbor's current heights minus your former height. And uh, it, well, it took me two years to figure that out. I mean, and I think other people knew it, but it was just one of those things. It, it took a long time to actually see that. And you can get, so you can get this very concise little rule that will do very nice wave motion for you. Maybe I'll show you that for a second. Uh, let me go back and uh, let's see. There's some waves in here. Uh, maybe these. So this would be, uh, I think this is just a regular uh, two-dimensional wave, but we can go and mess it up. Uh, we can. Ding it with something. Let's uh, let's ding it a few times, and let's do this. Let's uh, let's switch the view to 3D. Uh, let's just go to a, a flat view of it, and uh, let's go ahead and do one more thing. Let's ding it a bunch of times, and uh, so we get these fairly nice wave patterns moving around. And uh, this is low res. Now, it turns out the equation that's based on is linear. So that's why that's the physical wave equation. But you could throw in a quadratic term. The, the first person to ever explore cellular automata was Stanislaw Ulam. 
at uh, Los Alamos Labs. This was when he wasn't busy inventing the hydrogen bomb. He uh, worked. Uh, he wrote this, did the simulation, the Fermi Pasta Ulam simulation, and they were curious about what cubic waves would look like. So I've always had this dream of surfing on cubic waves. Uh, actually, I'm writing a science fiction story about that right now. But uh, whether <laughs> let's see, which one of these guys is the cubic? This guy's probably the cubic. Uh, okay. Now this is the 2D boiling wave. There's the, the cubic. So this guy, he starts out looking ordinary, but if we ding him, um, we'll probably get some more gnarly. So we threw some drops of water into him, and we'll get some uh, rather more gnarly kind of things coming up, I would imagine. But uh, this is, again, I guess I'm just mentioning this because uh, I'm a big believer in continuous valued cellular automata. And they generate a lot of really great patterns in real time. It's always seen to me that these should be used for skins for creatures. Uh, I, I don't know why that, that hasn't been done that much. I'm seeing some of that happening. Like I was at the um, Game Developers Conference in San Jose, and I noticed the PlayStation 3, they had a very nice water model. And I know you guys are, have been working on some stuff, too, or using some stuff in your new games. The uh, like splintering wood stuff, which is the idea of being there rather than a lot of times games are in some sense a little dull because you're just seeing these pre scripted things. But if we allow the computation to unfold and discover things for us, it could be gnarly and produce things that we didn't expect to see. Let's see what this looks like in uh, 3D just for kicks. Uh, Uh, sort of nice. Okay. Uh, maybe it should be brass. Oh, well, never mind. I'm not going to get into this. Okay, so um, now what are some of the, because I want to do a little Q&A too, so I'm going to wrap this up fairly soon. Theoretical consequences uh, of the Wolfram kind of worldview, there's uh, maybe three, three interesting facts. One is that uh, Wolfram formulates this principle of computational equivalence. And the idea is that most naturally occurring processes are, in fact, universal computations. And uh, I think that's certainly true. I, I, I don't see any problem with that being true. And what that tells us is, in some sense, if I'm looking like at the water in here, what it's doing is basically, as in principle, as complicated as what's going on in my brain. So. It's not surprising that I can't predict it that accurately. It's uh, capable. Notice if I had enough water, it could be just as complicated as my brain. So that's sort of nice, because we tend to think we're different, but universality is ubiquitous. Now, something that comes out of there are uh, universal computations which are predictable, but most naturally occurring ones also are not. So these are sort of two separate things. being universal and also being unpredictable, but very often these go hand in hand. So most processes in nature can't be emulated faster than they occur, uh, which in some sense is discouraging because there's this old sort of hubristic magician dream of finding a t-shirt of equations that will tell you the entire universe. And that's uh, probably not going to be true. And the reason being, again, uh, even if there is a t-shirt of equations that explains the universe, the, the way the universe unfolds is a computation that is gnarly, unpredictable. You can't predict what it's going to be like any faster than running it. So in some sense, knowing the formula doesn't do you any good, because uh, it's the details of working it out. Now, there's a sort of related thing, the third thing, uh, Gödel's incompleteness theorem said that any theory of mathematics, there's going to be things that are undecidable, that can't be proved or disproved. Uh, as I described in my book, there's, uh, th if we think of nature as being full of universal computations, that's going to be true that most natural processes, any scientific theory, there's going to be statements about that process that you can't prove or disprove. 
so uh, in a way, this is doing the synthesis thing for me. Because we really wouldn't want nature to be this dead uh, little stack of formulas. We want it to be living and, and escaping that. And if we look at it as a computation, it turns out you can have both those things be true. Now, some uh, designer notions I was trying to think of specifically for you guys. Uh, one thing to keep in mind, nature uses unpredictable computations. These are what look right. So whenever you have the possibility to put in some sort of procedural dynamic computation, rather than using some scripted thing, go with the, the procedural. And then uh, that, that, that um, euphoria thing that, that you recently started using, that's that, that type of thing. We say, let's take a system with linkages. We'll throw it against something. Now, we can't really predict where it would land, but we'll let it compute it out. And that, uh, that'll be nice. That's what we like to see. We like to see computations. Now, another thing that's uh, kind of less obvious, sometimes uh, you might say, well, will this computation do anything useful? And it turns out there's only so many, there's this sort of taxonomy thing. There's only so many kinds of things that computations produce. And these patterns emerge in all sorts of different systems. So even if you don't really see the connection between your system and the thing you want to model, and this, uh, this kind of segues into the next point, you don't necessarily have to use a complicated algorithm. Uh, because of universality, very simple algorithms can produce just as much complexity as the more complicated algorithms. Sometimes there's a downside of talking to a scientist, because they'll say, well, let's put in this correction term, this correction term, this correction term. And you'll get this hideous sort of algorithm that has all these extra valves on it and all these extra things to tweak. And then what you may or may not eventually discover, you could throw out all those extra valves and things and just go back to some but simple little algorithm. And if you put the right parameters into it, you'll get the same effect that you wanted in the first place because it is a universal computation. So a lot of times, rather than adding complexity to your algorithm, it is enough to play with the parameters and uh, see what emerges. Uh, and that's just the last point. Uh, a lot of times, because of the nature of unpredictable gnarly computations, you can't reason about what it's going to do. You're gonna, you can't sit there and say, I'm going to do such and such, and this is going to happen. I mean, sometimes that's true. And I'm not saying you shouldn't try to do that. But you need to be keenly aware that Lots of things are going to do stuff that you didn't expect. And of course, as a lot of your programmers, of course, you already know that. You know, why did it do that? I don't know. Let's move on. It's like so many things with the computers. We never really know why something happened. You just you, you go on. You go past it. If you try to find that out, you'll never get anywhere. But the, the point being that since, in some sense, our reasoning powers are they're not really commensurate with the kinds of things that come up when we're trying to predict what computations will do. This is why mechanized searches are actually a good thing to do. It sounds sort of like you're giving up, but that's what the pharma companies do. When they want to find a drug, they test out you know, 10,000, 100,000 possible drugs on these. Uh, you know, and uh, they don't necessarily test on people. They have biochip ways of testing it. And they just do brute force searches. And they find what they want. If you want to find a cellular automaton that makes the kind of pattern you want, rather than trying to figure out what will do the best, it's easier to just do write a little script to search through a couple of hundred thousand of them and see which one is going to make the kind of thing that you want to see. And it's there. It'll be there. It's just a matter of finding it. And again, the rule for it is not necessarily going to be particularly complicated. It's, uh, but you can have. Once you start turning the dials, you can have like a fairly simple framework. And still, there'll be 10 to the 10th possible ways you could set the parameters. So these searches can be kind of big. Now, um, I also said how to be happy. So these are the, I mentioned that sort of staircase before, uh, going from computer science to physics to biology to psychology to sociology to philosophy. And uh, from thinking about these ideas, I sort of wrote this book. Um, I moved to Silicon Valley in 1986. And 
at that time, I had the impression that I would quickly learn about computers and write a book about them. And then it, I went native on the story. And uh, it took me 20 years to sort of finish learning stuff, you know, teaching computer graphics, working at Autodesk, uh, doing all this stuff. And so I said, well, I'd like to get some wisdom out of this, because this is, I hope, the last book, last nonfiction book I will write about computers. But in my science fiction, there's computational elements. So I wanted to figure out, you know, what, what can I gain here? Can I get some sort of enlightenment? And so one level is simply something that it's a good idea to turn off your computer and go outside, which uh, is something I still need to remind myself of on a daily basis, because it's easy to, to blow the whole day just staring at the screen. And uh, sometimes, if you keep in mind that nature is a universal computation, it's doing just as much as this, this stupid box on your desk. So give it a chance. Don't just uh, look at it. Now, physics, uh, see the gnarl. Uh, I, I like to notice when I'm in environments, I like to notice things that are doing gnarly physical computation. Uh, one example that I often notice is if you see leaves swaying in the breeze. What they're doing is a chaotic computation. It's actually, if you're a physicist, you say, well, a branch swaying, it's actually similar to a system of linked pendulums. And as uh, if you even have two linked pendulums, you get a chaotic, gnarly computation. But a tree branch is really you know, dozens, or even scores, or even hundreds of sort of interlinked pendulum motions. And you get this really nice behavior. I've always wished that one of the nice things about living around here is you have the fog. And when it's foggy, you can see the air's motion. And the air's motion is amazingly turbulent which is uh, something that's really interesting to see. I don't actually see anything gnarly in this room. You know, anything dangling or swinging. Uh, I mean, I could shake my handkerchief if I need a little bit of gnarl just to cheer me up. I could say, oh, OK, there's some gnarly chaotic motion. So it, there's always, it's always around us. A third place, biology, your body, of course. Sometimes you, know, you long for getting like a Porsche or a whatever, an iPod or whatever new tech device you want. But you actually own a human body. I mean, can you imagine? This is like such an incredibly complex computational device. And you've got one. It's right here. Nobody's going to take it away from you. If they take it away from you, you won't notice. <laughs> you won't be there to worry about it. But uh, so in other words, appreciate your body. Sometimes it's sort of like this, I don't know. When you see anti-environmentalists, sometimes you get linked into this religious right view that Earth is just this piece of shit that we're supposed to use up so we can get it over with and go to heaven. And, uh, or, and you, don't, or, you don't want to think about Earth that way. You don't want to think about your body that way. It's just this, you know, th this thing I'm stuck with. It's you know, the best thing you're going to have. And it's, uh, it's beautiful. Uh, and take care of it. You know, get away from your computer, go outside, have some fun. Um, psychology, there's a, a whole thing that I didn't really get into about thinking about your, your thoughts as computations. And uh, one of the things that, one of the places I don't like to be in my head is to be in some sort of obsessive loop where I will be worried about some particular problem and then. I said this, she said that, I said this, she said this, you know, and just go around and around and around that loop. Uh, and that's sort of a class two computation. You're stuck in this loop. And uh, so to try, to try to get out of loops and to let the more gnarly inputs, let your flow of thoughts, your, your free flow of thoughts tends to be like a gnarly uh, rule 110 computation. Um, Another psychological thing, when we find out from you know, these considerations about the theory of computation how really kind of feeble logic is, logic, it's really just something that we, people got into in the last 100 years or so. And sometimes we act as if it's so important. And really, even if you're a scientist, the logic is only going to take you so far. I mean, nature is so much richer than it. So don't. Uh, 
don't minimize nature or reality ethics and give logic too much importance. And being prepared for the unexpected, because uh, things are not going to turn out the way you expect. In other words, no matter you know how together you think you have it, you may wake up. It's like the weather. You go to the beach, you, you never really know what it's going to be like. You get up the next day, you may find you're in a filthy mood. And in some sense, you don't really know why. It's this biochemical thing, whatever it is, you know, accept it. Sociology, uh, here's the point. If we take this computational view, you say, well, I've got a universal computer in here. You've got a universal computer in your head. You're actually you know, as rich a computation as I am. I mean, it's not just me. I'm not the center of the universe. We're all these centers. We're like a kind of a pile of the spherical glass lawn ornaments that reflect each other. So they used to love that when they were doing ray tracing demos. Okay? We're sort of like that. We're all reflecting each other. We're sort of all equally powerful. And when you open, kind of open your heart, and, and empathy is what it's about, you're saying, well, the, this is somebody who's a human being just like me. Inside, they feel the same as I do. That's liberating, because then you're not alone. You're not locked up. It's not all about you. So that's something, that an idea that comes out of these considerations. And a final notion is just simply be amazed. It's um, that, that the universe exists at all is amazing, and that so much of it really will eternally lie beyond science and logic. And in that case, you're not going to chop it up with logic. And all you can do, really, is be amazed and appreciate it. So those are the six ways to be happy. So that's about all I have today. Um, again, I'm, this book I'm talking about, I have a website about it, RudyRucker.com. Uh, you can just go to RudyRucker.com and find links to everything. But Lifebox is the book. I have a blog. I have a, one of the things I've re I retired, so I blog a lot. Actually, I should take your picture. Uh, can we bring the lights up? Yeah, I, I can blog my audience at ILM. Impress my two dozen readers. OK. I should get you all to bunch up so there's not so many empty seats. <laughs> this is actually a very good crowd. Uh, so thanks for turning out today. And uh, that's it. I would I would very much go with that that in fact I mean there's this famous book by Olaf Stapleton I think it's called Last and First Man and another one called Star Maker and he even argues that stars have consciousness or galaxies and I've always liked this notion that there's no particular reason why it just has to be us that has consciousness and intelligence you can even take a kind of an extreme view of that called panpsychism and say that even a rock has a, a rudimentary type of consciousness, which uh, that's usually you can find people that will disagree with you on that. <laughs> but uh, it's I, again, I, I enjoy playing with ideas. I enjoy pushing that. Actually, one of the, the things I'm planning for this novel I'm working on post singular, it's uh, They've got this very large kind of computational network going. What they've done is sort of the dream of the ARFIDs. They've, they've made self-reproducing ARFIDs so there's one on every square millimeter of every object on the planet Earth. So you can see everything all the time. Everything's a mesh. And these things are supporting this huge AI that sort of evolved on it. And the AI is sort of playing with the idea of smashing Earth up into particles to get you know, more computation. And then the kicker at the end is going to be they're going to say, wait, we don't have to smash it up. Matter's already doing all the computation we need. It's just a matter of, of looking at it in the right way.
the one missing part, when you take something like a, a waving handkerchief or a tree branch, is he already is doing universal computation, but it doesn't have RAM. It doesn't have memory. That's the sort of other part of computation. So I'm going to have to have my guys get from the aliens, get a sort of Higgs, Higgs field RAM patch that they can attach to everything, and then we'll be okay. So yeah, I think I think universe, I think it could be ubiquitous. Is there another question? Yeah. Okay, yeah, the link between opening your heart and gnarly computation, it would be the idea of the notion of universality. So if I say the idea being that all sorts of systems can emulate each other. So if I, if I look, sometimes in an extreme view, you would say, well, look at that person, you know, because of their appearance. They're not really like me. There's, there's very little going on in their head, you know. You know, maybe you would think that looking at a politician you don't like or at a homeless person, it could be in either direction, looking up or down. But if we then say this sort of, it's not specifically the gnarliness, it's more the idea of universality. If I say, well, after all, what's going on in their head is this type of universal computation, then it, it really, in principle, is not, I, I know that it can't be very different than what I'm experiencing. So that would be kind of it. I'm pushing it a little, admittedly. Uh, one person that sort of got that line of thought in my head, actually, was the photographer, uh, Diane Arbus. Because she used to always take, there was a show of hers at the SF MoMA last year. and made quite an impression on me. And she would seek out these sort of fringe members of society and take their pictures. But somehow there was such sympathy in the pictures. And I think that, that she had this ability no matter how weird the person was whose picture she was taking, the person was always looking at her like, this is a really weird person taking my picture. <laughs> and she was in quite a character. But uh, that, that sense of getting under the surface and seeing the humanity, that was something that struck me about her work. Yeah? Um, so a bit of an analogy. When I was a teenager, I was really, really nervous to go to a party because I was scared, what am I going to say? You know, how are people going to think I'm smart? Mm -hmm. And I dawned on me that everybody else is thinking the exact same thing, and yes. it, was, it was very liberating. I could yeah. not worry so much. Um, I have a question for you about the, the cone pattern, mm -hmm. the shell pattern. Um, how simple or complicated was that rule? Because I thought I saw it for a second, so uh -huh. it was similar. Uh, well, it's probably pretty simple. The biologists, in other words, we've created computer simulations uh, of rules that look very much like the cone shell pattern. Now, they've done some research on trying to prove that there's actually you know, some specific biochemical thing that's doing this. But as far as I know, they haven't nailed that. But we could find, essentially, it, it would be basically a, a, a rule with maybe two parameters. So basically, it's you take your neighborhood average, and you weight the left and the right cell for a certain amount. And maybe you have a threshold. If your average is higher than something, you go to black. If it's lower, you go to white. So something of that nature. So yeah, it would be quite a simple rule. The thing about high school, you actually never meet anybody who feels like they were popular and happy in high school. <laughs> I mean, every, this is like unicorns, you know? Everybody thought these people existed, but everybody says, no, no, I was a wreck, you know. Yeah? Yeah, quantum computation is, uh, I know a little bit about it. I don't, this other stuff I have a fairly deep knowledge of from programming and teaching. Quantum computation, my, my knowledge is more at the superficial level of somebody who's read some popular books on the subject. Um, the, uh, I think, well, there's been some, some dreams with computation that Sometimes it's presented that maybe it could do things, like do your drastic exponential speed up of any computation. In other words, you could say, we'll split into the multiverse. We'll look at every possible alternate, alternate path at once. We'll find the best one. And so we'll sort of crush this problem really quickly. And from what I gather, 
that's that's probably not going to work. Um, the, the 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 hard thing is, even if you did have a computation that manages to split into, you know, Google many branches, there's no way to pick out the right branch, because uh, you're still stuck. Then you have to interfere the branches together, and you get up with a single answer. So. It, it could very well be, though, that quantum computation will, I mean, that could certainly keep Moore's law alive for a long time and keep giving, getting us that steady increase. But I don't see it, at present at least, I don't see it as producing an utterly radical break in the sort of limitations and theorems that we know about ordinary kinds of computation. But I, I do see it as providing uh, increasing linear speedups for a very long time to come. And also, uh, the simplest idea of a quantum, I think the, and the sort of thing I'm playing with, again, the thing I referred to in post-singular, if we want to view matter, ordinary matter, as being a comp computer, the best way to say it's going to be a quantum computer. Because matter is dominated to a large extent by quantum things that it does, absorbing and emitting photons. And loosely speaking, I, I, one thing I heard somebody say, Whenever you shine light on something, the light bounces off. It's doing a quantum computation. So that's uh, so I think there's a lot of promise in quantum computation, uh, but it's it's exciting. It, we'll know more about it. That's all I can say. Yeah. Well, I think I'm comfortable with that because if, in other words, if it isn't deterministic, then, I mean, what's the randomizer? Where's the random noise coming from? We've got the whole universe. It's so like a closed system. And it seems like, and we know. Well, the determinism, I mean, you could say I've got this, this rule, and that's generating it. Or it could be maybe another thing that people don't talk about enough is that there could be an infinite descending number of levels. So it's, it, like quantum mechanics could just be this sort of marine layer of fog, that, but under it there's another layer, and then there's another layer, and there's another layer. Maybe the layers, maybe they go on forever. It's not impossible. It might relate to, it's sort of like the numbers. You sort of never run out of numbers to count, and maybe you would never run out of layers to find in reality. But it just, I guess, why I don't like the idea of nature being fundamentally random, I don't know. I just find it annoying. Well, well, if you want to base your free will on, like, say, quant random quantum decay, what kind of free will is that? I mean, that's you're waiting for a Geiger counter to click, and that's you decide who you're going to marry. I mean, that's that's no good either. But it's, I mean, it's it's something you could chew over a lot. I, I discuss it a certain amount in my book too. Uh, I don't really mind. I mean, it's actually, it's rather rare that I do something totally for no reason. By the time I make a decision, I usually have a reason for doing it. I once talked to Kurt Gödel, the famous logician, and I said, well, what if I could predict what I was going to do, and then I did the opposite? Wouldn't that prove that it's impossible to predict? He said, why would you do the opposite of what you want to do? <laughs> Uh, it's kind of stopped me. <laughs> yeah? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
okay, I, I see what you're getting at. Because I said, I said you can have a complicated algorithm and then maybe, you know, something that has 50 parameters, and maybe I can find a parameter an algorithm that only has two parameters, and I can generate the same kinds of patterns with both of them. Now, it might be the one that uses fewer parameters has to run for a longer time, okay? And you were saying, is there a contradiction between that and the idea that most computations are, uh, can't be speeded up? Most computations can be speeded up by a linear factor. That's why we buy new computers. We're looking for linear speed up. You know, instead of my megahertz chip, I have my gigahertz chip, it's going to run a thousand times faster. You can get linear speed ups. Uh, the kind of speed ups that I'm saying you normally cannot get. You can also, any computation, even without getting a new computer, if you get more RAM, you can use hash table techniques uh, and lookup tables. You can build these lookup tables and get a lot of speed up that way too. That's the other way to get speed up. Um, but the exponential speed up where we totally crush it and we say, we don't even have to turn on the computer. I can do the answer on the back of an envelope. That, that's the kind of thing that I'm ruling out. So again, if I say I can find a simpler algorithm that creates as interesting behavior as the more complicated algorithm, it might be, there's no real contradiction there because I would, it would be, again, it might be that the two take the same number of steps to run, or maybe that one takes 10 times as many steps as the other, but it's not going to be that one takes a logarithm of, of the same, of the number of steps that the other one takes. Yeah? Point nine 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 repeating to infinity. Um, well, it, it depends on how you define your number system. In the ordinary number system, the real numbers that mathematicians use, they are regarded as the same number. Uh, you can actually do uh, a kind of cute little proof of that. You can set x equal to point nine 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 nine, and then so ten x equals nine point nine 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 nine. And then you subtract uh, you subtract the x line from the 10x line, and then you get 9x equals 9, therefore x equals 1. So in other words, the way that we usually manipulate. On the other hand, there are alternate number systems, because although they call it the real number system, it's not real, because our decimals usually don't go on for infinity. Uh, there are. Uh, you can, <laughs> there was a movement in the 70s to start using infinitesimal or non-standard real numbers. And so then there we could say, well, maybe we can squeeze something in between 0.999 forever and 1. But it would be uh, an infinitely small number that we could squeeze in there. So it's, it's sort of a matter of what kind of theory you're going to play with. But, and if you want to read a lot more about that, you can dig out my book, Infinity in the Mind, which Princeton University Press recently put out a new edition. Yeah, I used to think about infinity, and that was the sort of 60s, but then now I just think about finite things. <laughs> so maybe that's enough for today. Hey, thanks for turning out.